Okay, we're going to get started. Today we'll actually start going through um, the story. We've kind of done some introductory stuff, made some big points here in the first two Bible studies. Okay, we're going to go through uh, just three chapters today in 1 Samuel. All right, so let's pray as we begin. <clears throat> Father, once again, thank you for this time that um, we can set aside and think about you and pray that just our discussion and, and reading the text will enlighten us about you and appreciate something about who you are. Amen. Okay, well, I think we've set the stage for this enough, but just in case, one more verse here from the early chapters in Samuel. It's kind of an interesting verse. In those days, when the boy Samuel was serving the Lord under the direction of Eli, there were very few messages from the Lord, and visions from him were quite rare. You read through the Bible quickly, it just seems like, man, back in that time, all kinds of uh, manifestations of God, again and again. But remember, we're reading through a lot of time, in, uh, oftentimes in just a few chapters. Okay, but direct manifestations from God were pretty rare at this time. It was a pretty dark time. Okay, remember, we're still really in the time of judges. Samuel was a judge. Okay, and um, so we want to talk about here what happened. Remember, we talked about Hophni and Phinehas. And there's this incredible story here. At that time, the Philistines gathered to go to war against Israel. So the Israelites set out to fight them. The Philistines attacked, and after fierce fighting, they defeated the Israelites and killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the survivors came back to camp, the leaders of Israel said, Why did the Lord let the Philistines defeat us today? And for us as readers, if we have been reading quickly through the Bible at this point, and we see how severe the rebellion was and the idolatry, um, well, this isn't a difficult question for us. I mean, the people are so far separated from God that um, uh, really they're not with him. And they, they kind of wonder, well, how come God wasn't with us? So here's their idea. Well, let's go and bring the Lord's covenant box from Shiloh so that he will go with us and save us from our enemies. Okay, what are they trying to do here in bringing the covenant box? It's um, really a little bit of a good luck charm, isn't it? Okay, well, we have the box with us. Then surely we're going to defeat our enemies. So they sent messengers to Shiloh and got the covenant box of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned above the winged creatures. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, said, this is a terrible idea. No, they came along with the covenant box. And when the covenant box arrived, the Israelites gave such a loud shout of joy that the earth shook. <clears throat> the Philistines heard the shouting and said, listen to all that shouting in the Hebrew camp. What does it mean? When they found out that the Lord's covenant box had arrived in the Hebrew camp, they were afraid and said, a God has come into their camp. We're lost. Nothing like this has ever happened to us before. Who can save us from those powerful gods? Plural. They are the gods who slaughter the Egyptians in the desert. And it's interesting, they remembered their history. They knew what happened with the plagues of Egypt. <clears throat> okay, but they summoned up some bravery. Be brave, Philistines. Fight like men, or we will become slaves to the Hebrews, just as they were our slaves. Okay, that's the book of Judges. It's this continual cycle of the um, Jewish people being enslaved, then a judge would free them. Okay, so fight like men. And the Philistines fought hard and defeated the Israelites who went running to their homes. There was a great slaughter. 30,000 Israelite soldiers were killed. <clears throat> and the messenger who came back from battle 
Okay, and he ran into Eli, and he answered, Israel ran away from the Philistines. It was a terrible defeat for us. Besides that, your sons Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and God's covenant box was captured. And when the man mentioned the covenant box, it's interesting, not when he mentioned the two sons, but when he mentioned the covenant box, Eli fell backward from his seat beside the gate. He was so old and fat that the fall broke his neck and he died. And he had been a leader in Israel for 40 years. Okay, and it's a quite a traumatic story. Eli fell over, was dead. There's some other interesting details. Okay, but the covenant box was captured. And I think it's helpful as we read a story like this. Um, sometimes, you know, we've heard these so many times as, as kids' stories. We, we know what happened. We kind of go through it quickly. Yeah, I know this story. But to try to imagine, what would you do if you were in God's shoes in a situation like this? So after the Philistines captured the covenant box, they took it into the temple of their god, Dagon, and set it up beside a statue. Okay, what would you do if you were God in this situation? There's the covenant box. There's Dagon. Okay, and it's interesting, really what we're going to talk about in this Bible study is the, uh, the various methods, very dramatically different methods that God has used to reach people just at this one time. And I, I hope we can appreciate God's uh, versatility. Okay, but here's what he did on this occasion. Early the next morning, the people of Ashdod saw that the statue of Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground in front of the Lord's covenant box. So they lifted it up and put it back in its place. Well, early the following morning, they saw that the statue had again fallen down in front of the covenant box. This time, its head and both its arms were broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the body was left. And, um, you know, if you were going there every day to worship Dagon, um, what would you think if this god has to be continually glued back together again every morning? Uh, what would you, you're considering the covenant box, who represents one god, and there's Dagon. Now, was this meant to leave an impression? Well, because of this, that's why even today the priests of Dagon and all its worshipers in Ashdod step over that place and do not walk on it. Okay? Uh, isn't it possible that God was trying to perhaps even reach these people and show them, hey, this Dagon is not the, the real God? And I think uh, God so often has to meet people the, the most basic, actually the lowest level, I would say, um, for reaching people is really through power. Um, and, but God, I mean, that, how do you judge the gods in those days? It really was, how strong are they? Okay, it really was based on power. And so God, I think, is at least meeting them at that level. Hey, I am stronger than Dagon. Dagon is the fish god. Some people think that this should be translated that uh, when he fell over, that only the form of a fish was left. And so the top part fell off the arms broke off. Okay, now this isn't uh, an absolute certainty, but since uh, Dagon has been found in uh, Nineveh and various places in Assyria, some people uh, feel that uh, Jonah, that when he went to Nineveh, that it may have been that they were worshiping uh, Dagon. And so I appreciate this comment here on the one interpretation of Jonah. What better heralding as a divinely sent messenger to Nineveh could Jonah have had than to be thrown up out of the mouth of a great fish, in the presence of witnesses, say on the coast of Phoenicia, where the fish god was a favorite object of worship. So I, I think the, the point here is that um, God is really trying to reach these people. Okay, and if you worship a fish, and here you see this prophet come out of a fish, 
uh, maybe that would leave quite an impression. Okay, and for the Philistines, again, they keep seeing their God toppled over. At least the God of Israel would seem to be more powerful. Okay, well, there didn't seem to be any conversion of the Philistines. So we have this story. Just continuing on. The Lord punished the people of Ashdod severely and terrified them. He punished them and the people in the surrounding territory by causing them to have tumors. And when they saw what was happening, they said, the God of Israel is punishing us and our God, Dagon. Okay, interesting. Notice, he, whoops, he is um, also seeming to be interested here in defeating that false god. We can't let the covenant box stay here any longer. So they sent messengers and called together all five of the Philistine kings and asked them, what shall we do with the covenant box of the God of Israel? Take it over to Gath, they answered. So they took it to Gath, another Philistine city. But after it arrived there, the Lord punished that city too and caused a great panic. He punished them with tumors, which developed in all the people of the city, young and old alike. So they sent the covenant box to Ekron, another Philistine city. But when it arrived there, the people cried out, they brought the covenant box of the God of Israel here in order to kill us all. I mean, this was uh, quite a, a powerful message here uh, of terror about the God of Israel. So again, they sent for all the Philistine kings and said, send the covenant box of Israel back to its own place so that it won't kill us and our families. And there was panic throughout the city because God was punishing them so severely. Even those who did not die developed tumors and the people cried out to their gods, for help. Now, so the, they bring the priests together. What should we do? And I find their answer here quite interesting. You must make these models of the tumors and of the mice that are ravaging their country, and which is why some people feel this may have been the uh, bubonic plague here with the mice and the tumors. And you must give honor to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will start pu stop punishing you. Notice your gods. Now, these gods aren't real, are they? So what does it mean for God to punish the god Dagon and their false gods? And your land. Why should you be stubborn as the king of Egypt and the Egyptians were? Don't forget how God made fools of them until they let the Israelites leave Egypt. So prepare a new wagon and two cows that have never been yoked, hitch them to the wagon, drive their calves back to the barn. So the story here of the, um, the Exodus was quite memorable. This keeps brought up several times here by other nations. They remembered this story. And uh, we won't go through this in detail, but uh, last year when we talked about the plagues, uh, we went through, there was, a, there was a purpose here in the plagues. In the uh, polytheistic uh, religion here in Egypt, every single plague was really directed against a god, a god that didn't exist, but God was really defeating those false gods. Of course, they worshiped a god of the Nile, Okay, and so what would it say if Moses here is able to turn the Nile into blood? Wouldn't that say the God of Israel is stronger than uh, the God of the Nile? And again, if you're Pharaoh and Moses comes and says, says, let my people go, you judge a God by how powerful they are. And so in Pharaoh's mind, well, your God is a God of slaves, certainly not someone I need to pay any attention to. Okay, it's the only level you can reach people like that is power. So we go through all of these. There was a God of the frog. All of this is known now. And again, if you had to spend a whole night sweeping up dead frogs, it might make an impression. Well, I guess the God of the frog is nothing compared to the God of Israel. And we go through all of these. Okay, I think a very purposeful way that God could actually go through and defeat and expose these gods as completely impotent. Okay, so of course, well-known Ra, the sun god, 
And so if the God of Israel is able to darken the sky, um, that would say, again, he is more powerful. He's the real God. There's nothing behind these gods. And so on the pass Passover here, again, just like what we're reading here in 1 Samuel, okay, what was God doing? Punishing all the gods. Punishing them. They're not real. But he's exposing them as impotent. He's defeating them. And remember that there was a mixed multitude. There were Egyptians that came out with the Israelites uh, into the wilderness wandering. So apparently some people were impressed at least by the, uh, the show of power. So I like to just make a case here, and I find this uh, uh, very interesting here about the Philistines. We tend to think, you know, God is just with one people, and he doesn't care much about the surrounding nations, but um, <coughs> tucked away here in the book of Amos about the Philistines. It's quite an interesting verse here. The Lord says, people of Israel, I think as much of the people of Ethiopia as I do of you. And notice, I brought the Philistines from Crete and the Syrians from Kerr, just as I brought you from Egypt. Okay, this says, you know, God is working with everyone, everywhere. Um, wasn't very successful, it wouldn't appear, with the Philistines. Okay, but he was working. He was trying to uh, somehow reach these people. So the, the point here is, at least I would like to make, is that um, we're all God's children. Okay? Uh, whether we believe in God or not, uh, I think God still considers us all of his children. Um, I think I used this illustration last year, and this is not my illustration originally, but you know, I have three kids, and if one of them just rebelled horribly and left home and did all kinds of terrible things, and you asked me how many kids I have, I think I would always say I have three kids. Okay, their behavior from day to day uh, is not going to change my attitude about that. I won't say tomorrow, you know, two of them are behaving badly, I only have one. And the next day I have two. And then the next day I have three again. Okay, they're, they're all, again, in my mind, my children. Okay, no matter what they do. And we see God successful with uh, many, uh, quotes heathen people here throughout the Old Testament. Of course, Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, incredible uh, well-known individuals like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus that God was able to reach. Okay, God is trying to reach the Philistines, I think, in this story. Of course, we have the Roman officer, and um, Jesus would say, I've never found anyone in Israel with faith like this. Okay, he didn't grow up with all of the traditions and, and the scriptures, okay, but a man of great faith, the Canaanite woman. Remember, Jesus said to her, you are a woman of great faith. Okay, so God has an intense interest in everyone. Okay, and I think he's, again, trying to reach the Philistines with a message, hey, at least I'm more powerful than Dagon. Now you remember what happened next. The, the cart goes off to Beth Shemesh. People there were reaping wheat in the valley, and when they suddenly looked up, they saw the covenant box. They were overjoyed at the sight, and I wish the story ended right there. Okay, but it doesn't, and because of that, we end up with... Um, you know, well-known movie stories like this, Indiana Jones in the Covenant Box. Okay, you know what happened next. The people peeked in the box, and the Lord killed 70 of the men. There's some argument about how many actually died based on the understanding of the uh, Hebrew, but uh, the Lord killed 70 of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the Covenant Box, and the people mourned because the Lord had caused such a great slaughter among them. So the men of Beth Shemesh said, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God, where can we send him to get away, get him away from us? 
And they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim to say, the Philistines have returned the Lord's covenant box, come down and get it. And when we get into 2 Samuel, we'll pick up the story here with the covenant box, and uh, we'll talk about Uzzah. And um, David wanted to bring the, the covenant box back because the home was being blessed where this covenant box was at. But here at this time, because of, uh, again, fear and terror, the people wanted to get as far away as they could from that covenant box. So we're trying to understand, um, you know, why would God need to use methods like this? And maybe we get a clue here. If we skip forward to the, the prayer of Solomon when he dedicated this, the temple. Okay, and Solomon at that time was humble. Okay, and it's a wonderful prayer, but just to pick out one little part of the prayer where Solomon said, look on us and listen to the prayers offered in this place. Rise up now, Lord God, and with the covenant box, the symbol of your power, enter the temple and stay here forever. And when King Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, burned up the sacrifices that had been offered, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence filled the temple. Okay, and the curtains didn't burn up, and no one was killed. Okay, but the light of God's presence filled the temple at that time. Okay, the symbol of God's power. And um, again, you have an extremely rebellious people, and here they are, I think just kind of casually, well, let's look inside the box and they've just tried to send it out as a good luck charm to win the battle. Um, what does God have to do to gain a little bit of respect? And so I think one argument we could make here, you know how Proverbs opens up here, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and that doesn't mean to be scared to death of God is the beginning of knowledge. This could be translated, to have knowledge you must first have reverence for the Lord. You know, and, and certainly, you know, as a parent, for example, or as a teacher, uh, there has to be a little bit of respect or reverence, okay? If the, the re attitude towards you as a parent or a teacher is uh, complete rebellion, okay, well, you'd have to raise your voice. You'd have to do something to, to gain some uh, respect. That's a very, very basic level. And I think God takes a great risk when he does this. We read this story and, um, well, we maybe wonder about God a little bit, okay? So it's, it's risky in a sense for God to do these things, but I think he is doing what is necessary to reach people in a very, very dark time. And I would also like to just say, I think they really were on the brink of disaster, going off a spiritual cliff, so to speak, okay? And God had to do something quite dramatic to at least get their attention. Okay, so the people of Kiriath-Jerim got the Lord's covenant box. They took it to the house of a man named Abinadab. And I was just reading on the next verse after these 70 people died. They consecrated his son Eleazar to be in charge of it. And the covenant box of the Lord stayed in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, some 20 years until David came to get it. And during this time, all the Israelites cried to the Lord for help. Okay, and Samuel said, if you're going to turn to the Lord with all your hearts, you must get rid of all the foreign gods. Again, evidence, they are nowhere close to God. They have foreign gods. They're really not in any sense in a, in a relationship or fulfilling the covenant with God. Okay, they're really in a rebellious situation. Again, suggesting why God would have to do something so dramatic. So Samuel would say, dedicate yourselves completely to the Lord. Worship only him. Okay, and then he'll rescue you from the power of the Philistines. Okay, and I think uh, the other point I want to make in this Bible study here is about Paul or Saul becoming king, and I think it ties in, perhaps we'll explain a little bit, uh, the difficulty we have with the covenant box. 
So when Samuel grew old, he made his sons judges in Israel, but they did not follow their father's example, kind of like Hophni and Phinehas. They were interested only in making money, and they accepted bribes and did not decide cases honestly. Okay, so the people got together, all the leaders of Israel, and they went to Samuel in Ramah and said to him, look, you are getting old and your sons don't follow your example. So then appoint a king to rule over us so that we will have a king as the other countries have. Now here's what I find interesting. Did God want them to have a king? It's pretty clear as we read on that he did not. And Samuel was also displeased with their request for a king. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said, listen to everything the people say to you. You are not the one they have rejected. I am the one they have rejected as their king. It was not God's plan to have a, a monarchy. Okay, he wanted to be their leader. But ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they've turned away from me and worshiped other gods. And now they are doing to you what they've always done to me. So then listen to them, but give them strict warnings and explain how their kings will treat them. And Samuel is very detailed. I left out a, a lot of points here, but he tells them, you want a king? Uh, let me tell you. First of all, he'll make soldiers of your sons. Your sons will have to plow his fields, harvest the crops, make his weapons and the equipment for his chariots. Your daughters will have to make perfumes for him and work as his cooks, bakers, in his harem. He'll take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his officials. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your grapes for his court officers and other officials. He'll take your servants and your best cattle and donkeys and make them work for you. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Now you would think with such a warning here that uh, that would be an end of discussion. Okay, so it's remarkable here that, um, well, he, he also would say, when that time comes, you will complain bitterly because of your king, whom you yourselves chose, but the Lord will not listen to your complaints. But the people paid no attention to Samuel, and actually the rest of the Bible study for this year, we're going to be in the time of the kings. Okay, and we're going to see that this was really proven true. Okay, that the kings, for the most part, were bad. Okay, and it was, again, we just kind of continue on with very, very difficult uh, times. But the people paid no attention to Samuel and said, no, we want a king so that we will be like the other nations with our own king to rule us and lead us out to war and to fight our battles. Okay, because he'll certainly do better than God has been doing. They want their own king. Now, so Samuel listened to everything they said and then went and told it to the Lord. And based on what we know about God, and, and I wish we could somehow pretend that we don't know what God said in this story, okay, we have verses like, I change not. Okay, with some descriptions, God is quite uh, inflexible. Okay, it's just my way or the highway. Okay, but here God has told them it's a horrible idea. Let me give you about 20 reasons why this is a horrible idea. Don't get a king. Okay. And then Samuel comes back and says, well, sorry, they still want a king. And the Lord answered, do what they want and give them a king. And then Samuel told all the men of Israel to go back home. Hey, why I find this remarkable here is um, we, we see God, and, and I think this is such an important principle for the Old Testament as a whole, God giving in to something that was not the ideal. Okay. Uh, giving in to something that was really light years from what his plan really was, had uh, devastating consequences. 
Okay, but if we're going to try to understand the Old Testament, we need to see God, many of the things that God did, it's not the ideal. Okay, we only see that really in Jesus. Okay, so God gave in. Now, if we go back to Deuteronomy, okay, this didn't catch God by surprise. This is Deuteronomy 17. Okay, and God would say, after you've taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is going to give you and have settled there, then you will decide you need a king, like all the nations around you. Okay, and so it's not my plan, but let me at least give you some advice if you're going to do that. Be sure that the man you choose to be king is the one whom the Lord has chosen. The king is not to have a large number of horses for his army. Okay, we'll read about Solomon and all the horses that he had for his army. He's not to send people to Egypt to buy horses. Okay, we'll read about Solomon going to Egypt to buy horses. The king is not to have many wives. Okay, I don't think I need to comment on that one. Okay? That was a thousand wives and concubines that Solomon had, David. Okay, but there it is, not to have many wives, because this would make him turn away from the Lord. What was it that turned Solomon away from God? It was his many wives that led him into the worship of other gods. He's not to make himself rich with silver and gold. Okay, what do we know about Solomon? Okay, and there it is. Okay, when he becomes king, he's have to have a copy of the book of God's laws and teachings made from the original copy kept by the Levitical priests. He's to keep this book near him and read from it all, all his life. What do you think he's going to read if the king is really reading the book? He's going to come to Deuteronomy 17. Of course, there were no chapters at that time, but he would come to this passage. Oh, don't have many horses. Don't make myself rich. Okay, he's to read the book. So he'll learn to honor the Lord and to obey faithfully everything that is commanded in it. This will keep him from thinking that he is better than other Israelites and from disobeying the Lord's commands in any way. So again, I, I think we see God doing everything he can. God's always pulling out all the stops to reach us, to prevent these things from happening. Okay, and, and there it is in Deuteronomy 17. But coming back here to this concept is another maybe important principle for understanding difficult stories of the Old Testament. God giving in. There are so many examples of this. Okay, this is one. God was not in favor of the monarchy. Okay, but he allowed for it. Lots of examples. Polygamy. Um, you know, you can go online and find people that are still strong supporters of polygamy and they have Bible verses to quote. Okay, so we're dangerous if we don't see God giving in. Okay, we're going to have a hard time explaining some of these verses. For example, Exodus 21. If a man takes a second wife, you know, why is it worded that way? Why isn't it, a man may not take a second wife, period. No, if a man takes a second wife, he must continue to give his first wife the same amount of food and clothing and the same rights that she had before. Well, this is the same principle. Uh, back in that time, uh, this was a very cruel process. You didn't like your wife, kick her out on the street, take another one. Don't like her, kick her out, take another one. And it was really the end of the woman's life, okay? And so God is, I think, saying here, hey, I'm not in favor of polygamy at all, but I'm going to meet you at a less than desirable level and at least say, well, if you're going to do that, okay, you have to at least take care of the first wife, okay? It's not the ideal. It's giving in. And of course, we take the Bible as a whole. It's very clear that God is not in favor of uh, polygamy. Lots of things. God gave them manna as they're wandering through the wilderness. Okay, people didn't like the manna. So what did God do? Okay, eat meat. Let me give you a list of clean and unclean meat so at least you'll be safe if that's what you want to do. Uh, there was the practice of uh, private vengeance. 
okay, that was uh, very common in that time, where basically if you were chopping wood, your axe handle flew off and killed someone by accident, okay, it was really expected that the, it was, even though it was an accident, that the family of the person that was killed would hunt you down and kill you, even though it was an accident. That's just their concept of justice in that time. So what does God do? Again, I think too much too fast to just say, no more private vengeance. Okay, so what God did was he gave cities of refuge where the man could flee, okay, he'd be safe in that city until the high priest died, and then legally he was okay. He could leave the city at that point. Okay, it's again God meeting us halfway. We could go through so many things. Again, people quote the Bible or have in history, at least up through the, the Civil War, to support slavery. Okay, because there are verses that, that can be interpreted that way. And that, again, I think, uh, you know, the writings of Paul, talk to slaves and so on. Uh, God's methods were always to bring people to a better situation than what it was. Uh, last year, we spent a long time talking about the treatment of women in the Bible. And I think uh, we can make just such a great case that God is always pushing the ball forward. He's always trying to do things better than a time and culture. Uh, last year, I also tried to make the case that it was never God's plan that the people would fight their way into the land of Canaan. People wanted to fight. We see them here wanting to fight. They want a king so they can fight. Okay, and so God is saying, all right, well, if you're going to do that, I mean, I can either leave you, abandon you entirely, or I'll stick with you and I'll help you fight. Okay, so we see God giving in. But if we don't have this concept, then what we'll be doing is we'll be using some of these examples where God gave in and trying to apply that today. We'll have a God who wants us to fight today. We'll have a God who wants us to treat women in a certain way uh, using things that were said a long, long time ago, rather than seeing God stooping to meet us where we were at a difficult time in history. And we have a great example here. Just read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus would go through these Old Testament examples and would say, yes, there was a time for eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth but no more. Love your enemy. Pray for them. Okay, and people were offended. Well, hey, we've got the verse right here in the Old Testament. He's going against the Bible. Okay, but uh, I think if we're going to have Jesus come along and say, don't do it that way anymore, then we'd have to say that was not the ideal. That was God giving in. Okay, Jesus would come to show us the ideal, which is not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and, and so many other examples. Okay, I gave this example last year, but it's just one of the best ones that I know of. A uh, story of uh, missionaries going off to various places. I don't remember where this was in Africa, but the, uh, the culture, the custom there was that men beat their wives, and they beat their wives to show them that they loved them. It doesn't make any sense to us, but that's, that was uh, kind of the, the mindset. And so the missionaries came, and I think were quite rightly offended by this, and they had uh, convinced some of the men that they should stop beating their wives, and some of the men did, and guess what happened? The women came and complained, our husbands don't love us anymore. Okay? Um, it, hard for us to identify with that, but I think we have to see God here, this term, God is a patient missionary. You can't quickly bring people out of long established customs and cultures, you have to gradually lead them along, and I think that's what we see God patiently doing, uh, here in the Old Testament. Remember the horrible things we read that God had to tell the people at Mount Sinai to stop doing. And here is, I think, uh, perhaps the, for me, the most convincing um, example 
in a story of God giving in and uh, that this is really, these are really God's methods. Okay, remember uh, Jesus talked about divorce and this upset the Pharisees because they've got all these divorce laws in the Old Testament and Jesus would do away with that. How could he do that? So they came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Okay, and they, they were sure they had him because they had Jesus saying no earlier. Okay, and then they're holding the Bible in hand. So how's he going to get out of this? I like Jesus' answer. Haven't you read the scriptures? Okay, it was, of course, because they had read the scriptures that they came with this question. Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. And they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he explains this, explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So what Jesus is saying is there was an ideal. There was a time. This is the ideal. Let me explain. If you go all the way back to the beginning, this was God's plan okay, for marriage. This is the ideal. Okay, and I'm so glad they asked a follow-up question. Well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Okay, and here's Jesus' answer. Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I would like to apply this verse, Matthew 19.8, to story after story after story in the Old Testament. Okay, Moses, God, permitted all kinds of things in the Old Testament, but it was a concession to our hard hearts. Okay, he met us where we were, you know, again, the choice is, is either I'm just going to have to leave you or I'm going to meet you halfway. I'm going to give in to something that's not the ideal. But he did that because of our hard hearts. It was not what God had originally intended. And Jesus would come along to try to uh, clear up the picture on so many things. All right, so next time we're going to talk about uh, the story of Saul. And if you want to read on a little bit from 1 Samuel 8, I think it would be helpful as we consider what went wrong with Saul. Hey, okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, we see these uh, dramatic methods here that you've used at times in the Old Testament, but um, certainly there's, there's much to admire in the fact that you have met people far from the ideal, and probably you're doing the same with us. But help us to come closer to the ideal. Help us to um, not need some of these measures that you've used in the past. Help us to appreciate uh, who you are as revealed in Jesus. Amen.